Hey everyone, it's Anita and Lucas. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. Every Tuesday, we interview an expert in the Web3 space. This week, we talk to Lee Jin of Variant. Jin has been investing in the creator economy for a while now. She started her career as a consumer VC at Andreessen Horowitz, and she's now a general partner at Variant Fund, which is a crypto native venture firm that recently announced their raise of $450 million. And some of her investments include Uniswap, Mirror, Yield Guild Games, and Substack. So a lot of familiar names there. We really wanted to chat with Jin because she's pretty well known in venture circles for some of her writings on the content creator economy. And this crypto downturn has kind of complicated some of the promise of artists using Web3 to build sustainable streams of income. So it's clear there's some wrinkles in this. So we want to get into some of that. Yeah, so let's get right into it. Well, we are very excited to have Lee with us today. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So it's obviously been like a turbulent few months or whatever, but the space has been pretty exciting for the past couple of years and you've really dug into it. I know that one of your specialties has been the creator economy. So I'm kind of curious if you could just break things down right off the bat in terms of like what distinguishes a Web3 content creator from someone who's mainly sticking to Web2 platforms. So I think there's a lot of ways I could answer this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's definitely true that part of the reason why I got into Web3 in the first place as an investor is from observing and studying the creator economy really closely and very strongly feeling like Web3 was the model or the direction that we were headed in with regards to the creator economy that could offer more creator empowerment and greater enfranchisement. In terms of what actually distinguishes a Web3 creator versus Web2, I tend to not draw the distinction in that way. Okay. Instead, I think of creators as being really heterogeneous. There's lots of different types of them. I think there's no one single like monolithic identity of a creator, but rather a commonality amongst the entire creator economy is that creators are picking and choosing tools to add to their toolkit to best suit their needs. So they're choosing a variety of different monetization models or different platforms to use. There's different parts of their workflow from audience building to engagement to monetization and mm -hmm. different software platforms might slot in at different stages of that workflow. And so I think of Web3 as really today tackling like that last stage of the workflow, which is monetization. Mm -hmm. And it's typically coupled with lots of Web2 platforms that serve the top of the funnel, which is audience building. And so creators are exploring, you know, how do I funnel my audience to greater and greater engagement with me and increase their affinity with me and ultimately make a living off of creating this content? And Web3 offers an entirely new type of business model that's predicated on digital scarcity. But oftentimes that supplements other types of business models that they're also leveraging potentially from Web2. Mm -hmm. So I think of it less of a, there's a Web 2 creator versus Web 3 sure. versus people are mixing and matching the tools that work for them. I guess, and maybe this is a little bit of a nebulous question, but when I think of like a Web 2 creator, like if I think of someone starting a new YouTube channel, their audience is slowly getting to know them. And I'm sure that's the same case with Web yeah. 3, but maybe in Web 2, the like viewers ending up thinking more about the next video versus with Web 3, it's kind of more of a long time horizon that they're thinking about like, mm -hmm. okay, well, what's my relationship with this creator going to look like in a year and a half? Like, am I in investing in the future success of this creator versus the quality of their next video. So that kind of changes how maybe totally. that early relationship is built. Yeah, I think that's definitely a great observation. I'm actually writing a post about this right now, still under... <laughs> under construction. But really, the idea of this is the new creator playbook in Web3 and how that differs substantially versus the old creator playbook in Web2, which, as you mentioned, involved putting out a lot of content 
oftentimes mm-hmm. creators would invest, you know, months or years of their time into building right. up an audience through free content before switching on monetization or being able to even turn on monetization through some of the platforms. And so the model was like, you know, get as large of an audience as possible, put out a ton of content that hopefully attracts lots of people before hoping to monetize that one day. And so it was a multi-year process to become a creator in Web 2. Sure. Whereas in Web 3, I think a new playbook that is being written right now is how can a creator use tokens to bootstrap that initial monetization and initial audience, even in advance of creating content. Mm -hmm. So the ordering is sort of flipped where we're seeing all of these creators launch a token whether that's a non-fungible like NFT collection or a social token, that token instantiation actually draws fans or audiences to them, potentially for speculative reasons as well. I think the mm-hmm. user psychology also differs substantially. And then they take that pool of funding as well as that audience that has been bootstrapped, which now has skin in the game and their success, mm-hmm. and then uses that to create content that now has an inbuilt audience who is interested in it and wants to see it succeed. So I think that is like a major difference that is newly emerging. Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess jumping off of what you said there, I'm curious about, you started talking a little bit about this, but what makes Web3 uniquely suited as a monetization tool? I mean, we have like platforms like Patreon and things like that, like other ways that creators can fundraise and essentially monetize their work. So why is it that Web3 is Mm -hmm. such a special tool and creates that kind of opportunity that you wouldn't otherwise get as a creator? Yeah, I think there's two primary reasons that I'll point to today and then two more that are more forward looking and have yet to be fully realized. And This is also outlined in a post that I put out last December called the Web3 Renaissance, all about how Web3 can lead to this kind of content creator renaissance. We'll link in bio. (laughs) (laughs) We will. Yes, link and subscribe. (laughs) And the reasons why Web3 represents such an unlock for the creator economy in terms of monetization is really predicated on two things today. One is the idea of digital scarcity. And then the second is combining patronage with profit or what my colleague Jesse calls patronage plus, patronage with the possibility of profit. So unpacking those two things a little bit, the first point about digital scarcity. So previously, previous to Web3 and blockchains, you really didn't have the ability to track the provenance or the ownership history or to even know like that a single media asset was scarce. Every media asset prior to blockchains was infinitely copyable. There was no way to see if this was the original instantiation. That wasn't even a concept. And so the consumer benefit was there in the sense that they could access all of this free content that really lacked a business model and the consumer surplus was tremendous. But the flip side of that is that creators were often relegated to using advertising as a means to monetize their content or had to monetize their content more obliquely rather than being able to sell it directly because obviously a key tenant of like being able to create value around something is that it's scarce. Like there is a limited quantity of it. That's how we ascribe value to things. And so the introduction of digital scarcity is actually really meaningfully different for creators because it allows them to say that this single media asset or this single type of file or token is scarce, that there's only X number of them in the wild. They've been legitimized and created by the creator. It is the canonical, you know, instantiation of this asset. And then audiences actually ascribe value to that. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about whether they should or not (laughs) with the whole right click and save stuff. But it's just the audiences will do what they will. (laughs) Exactly. It's just a fact that humans value what is scarce and want to feel close to someone by owning something that is scarce and that was created by them. And so this has helped creators monetize to already the range of like billions of dollars per year through NFT sales 
this A16Z report put the number at $3.9 billion was earned by creators last year through NFTs on Ethereum. And so this idea of digital scarcity has been really a tremendous value proposition for creators being able to capture value from their work itself. And then the second piece of why Web3 is important is this idea of patronage plus. So it shifts the value proposition on the consumer side from merely consuming something and supporting it out of altruism or supporting it for some other type of utility and, and value that you're deriving from it to also adding a profit incentive to supporting a creator. And that also ties back to the digital scarcity point. By owning something that is scarce, you could potentially resell it later on for a higher price. And so this newly added fan benefit of the possibility of profit, I think has turbocharged the monetization capabilities of creators where fans could potentially actually earn a profit off of purchasing their work or investing in a creator. And then down the line, looking more towards the future of what Web3 could represent for creators, I think one hypothetical use case that has been written about a lot by people who watch the space is the potential to create like a universal media library, maybe through NFTs that would then have baked in revenue flows and monetization models such that anytime a work gets referenced, there's some sort of royalty scheme that then flows back to original creators. Because mm -hmm. the idea is that all creativity is kind of iterative and builds on what was created before, yet that economic flow system hasn't been built out. And could potentially be built out if we had this universal sort of catalog or library of all works that have been created. And then lastly is the idea of shared ownership of products and communities. Creators obviously have been responsible for creating a lot of the equity value for technology companies mm -hmm. over the last decade plus, and yet have captured very little of that equity value simply because of well, a lot of different limitations and reasons for that. Yeah. But one of the promises of Web3 is the ability to distribute ownership through tokens. And we've seen a number of, for instance, like NFT marketplaces or different protocols share ownership with their users in the form of tokens and mm -hmm. drive value to that token. I'm curious, and I kind of want to circle back around something you said earlier. It was talking about how Web2 creators, they may put a lot of free content out there before they ever have really hopes of monetizing the stuff they're creating. And that sounds pretty similar to how the Web2 platforms exist in terms of they're trying to build an audience as well. They don't want to poison the well in terms of monetizing too quickly. But I guess like with Web3 stuff, some of these things, it's not like they're operating on like a well-tread paradigm. Like some of the stuff is the platforms themselves are seeing if this works too in terms of monetizing mm -hmm. first with the future promise. So I guess like one of the pieces of criticism I hear and I can kind of resonate with a, a bit is like in the Web2 world, it was the venture capitalists taking the risk on some of these platforms taking off in the first place. But here it's kind of spread across the whole gamut. So you have the creators, you have people just working on play to earn stuff. Everyone's kind of in this grand experiment at the same time. So do you think that that's like a good thing? Do you think it just that's like a sign of the excitement around it? Or should, you know, have this move slower? I know that's a dangerous question <laughs> in VC circles to ask, but I'm curious. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Something that I've said before is that Web3 enables everyone to be an investor. And I've like, there's lots of different versions of this, like everyone becomes a VC or everyone should be an investor in the products and services that they're using. I think the flip side of that, as you're pointing out, is like not everything that people are investing in is ultimately going to turn out to be valuable, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's no promise that what you own is actually going to be worthwhile or something that helps you build wealth. 
Yeah. So even though Web3 makes it possible to expand access to ownership, it doesn't make the promise that that ownership is ultimately going to be valuable. And I think that the key diff between that versus Web2 <laughs> is like in Web2, you know, there was a special segment of people or institutions that could have access to ownership of private companies in the form of VCs or institutional or accredited investors. Now, a lot of these projects are launching tokens much earlier in their life cycles before yeah. startups would have IPO'd and presented access to retail investors. And that comes with both benefits as well as drawbacks. The benefits mm -hmm. are more possibility for investors to be a part of that growth way in advance of the Web2 centralized counterpart would have been made available to them. But the flip side is like potentially getting involved in projects that are relatively riskier and don't ultimately retain their value. So I'm a believer really in individual choice and freedom. A lot of my work is really guided by the notion of human freedom and how do we expand freedom. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a fan of like patronizing regulations that dictate who can and cannot invest in what types of assets and sure. just sort of saying that this entire swath of the population shouldn't be able to invest at all in these types of assets. Yeah. Instead, what I think we need more in the space is just broader education, education and disclosures about who is providing the education and what their interests are and what their exposure might be such that users can make the best possible decisions for themselves. Yeah, it's a fascinating issue. And I mean, like, I guess when you talk about democratizing access to asset classes, it's only been within the past few years that people have been able to purchase stocks through apps. So I guess when you think about the idea that someone is a few clicks away from doing call options or something that's a little bit more on the risky side in some of these apps as well. You kind of wonder if that like, it's not like there's a perfect option. Do we democratize stuff and kind of hold stuff back on an arbitrary timeline to like educate people? But people talk about the education problem in Web3. It's a very difficult problem to solve with anything but a little time. Like people have to lose money to understand certain things. People have to like go through all these experiences. And so there are people who've been in the space for five or 10 years years in the crypto world who have like learned, like, I got to keep my stuff in a hardware wallet. I got to like, I can't mm -hmm. click any of these transactions, but it's difficult when like everyday consumers have to learn everything the hard way sometimes. Yeah, I agree. Look, like, I think it's very sad to see some of the incidences that have occurred over the last few months. Like mm -hmm. I, I find it personally, like just very heartbreaking. And I feel like there was like not total transparency there with regards to how some of these products and applications worked or invested their capital. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I don't think the solution is just to bar access from retail sure. investors. I think it's more clarity of information disclosure and more education, more widespread knowledge. And I hope that you know we can play some small part in that through all of the content that we publish. And I hope that investors take their position in the industry very seriously and regard it as a responsibility to actually provide full transparency into how these products actually work. I think the point you made on education is a really fascinating one. And this is like an issue that I think about a lot, right? Because I totally agree with you about expanding access and like the personal freedom aspect being super important. And then if you think about our status quo, like people can lose money in the public markets too. Like we have disclosures. Obviously, it's not the same as some of these projects getting like fully rug pulled or anything, but it does happen. Like we remember Enron and like all, all of that other stuff that, that's gone down. But I guess when I'm thinking about that, a lot of people, including myself, feel like, okay, education is the answer. But I guess my question to you is like, who do you think that responsibility falls on? And how can they be incentivized to educate properly? Because a lot of the investors, they have like their own 
return goals and they want to cash out and end up on top. And the retail investors who are invested in the same project might not necessarily have access to that same information. So I guess, how do we align incentives to make sure that people who are new to investing in Web3 or new to investing at all are actually getting the right education and the right tools that they need? Yeah, I feel like a lot of people are learning about these projects from like a Jake Paul or something versus <laughs> right. like, yeah. I do learn yeah. a lot on TikTok. I'm not going to lie. but sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think the answer is like very multifaceted and probably entails a very multi-pronged approach. There's no like silver bullet to this. But sure. I think one of the issues that has plagued this last cycle is there was a lot of kind of like shilling of products masquerading as like education or neutral mm-hmm. information when really it came from people who had financial exposures to these tokens. Like in the Web2 world, you know, there's lots of regulation of influencers and how they have to disclose how they've been compensated and when they have financial interests in the thing that they're marketing. That doesn't exist yet in Web3. I think it should because when people read a piece of content that seemingly unpacks how a product works, they don't know like is this person holding this token? Are they not? Like, are they early investors? Like, who knows? And so it's very difficult right now as a retail investor to decouple education from marketing. Mm -hmm. Especially hard when it's a lot of pseudonymous Twitter accounts and you're just like, I don't even know who this person is. Maybe the FTC doesn't either. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So switching gears here a little bit, Lee, I know that you started out and you spent about two years as a solo GP, you know, running your own VC operation. And then you opted to raise this new fund with Variant. And I'm just curious what led you down that path and why did you sort of decide to pivot away from doing this on your own? Yeah. So interestingly, Variant started as all solo GPs, all three partners, myself, Jesse and Spencer, the three GPs at Variant, all got our start investing as fund managers as solo GPs. And we decided of our own volition to join forces. And I think it just really was for us a question of how can we make the biggest impact on technology development and as investors. And we really felt like the combination of all of our backgrounds and all of our expertise areas, it was a situation where the whole was greater than the sum of its parts. Right. Where I have this like very deep consumer background, having spent multiple years covering marketplace and social network investing at Andreessen. Um, Jesse Walden was my colleague there. He's been building in the blockchain space since 2014, helped set up the first E16C crypto fund, and he covers infrastructure investing for us. And then Spencer Noon, our third partner, was also a builder in the Bitcoin space since 2014 and was one of the first DeFi investors really to use on-chain analytics to assess the health of these different financial protocols. And so we all have these very, very diverse different backgrounds that we think helps bring something new to the table and in combination really helps all the founders that we back to connect the dots across the full stack. I think also, like, I know there's been like a solo GP kind of wave over the last couple of years. I think being a solo GP, it's kind of like being a solo founder of a startup. Like it gives you tremendous freedom. Lonely path. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of pros, but there's also lots of cons. It gives you tremendous freedom. You can basically, you know, do whatever you want. You can move really quickly. But ultimately, I think I like to go back to that saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I think that's really, really Mm -hmm. true in startups or in investing. And we decided that we wanted to go far. So we have to go together. I think one of the interesting things talking about the wave of solo GPs, I saw so many get really intrigued by Web3. And maybe they had a focus that was on enterprise SaaS products or something like future of work. But a lot of them kind of found their way to Web3 in one way or another. Do you think that that's just a product of the general excitement around the space? Or do you think that something about being a solo GP made this something you could 
deploy capital to tokens and do stuff like that, like that was a little bit more effective for the model? I can't really speak for anyone but myself, but I think for me, being solo really aided in the acceleration of my learning process and becoming like full-time Web3 because I could move super quickly. I could meet with all types of companies, whatever piqued my interest, I could decide, you know, I'm going to spend all my time here. And that's what happened. When I first raised Atelier Fund One, I didn't envision it as a Web3 fund. It was envisioned Mm -hmm. as a future of work consumer software fund. And it just so happened that from the outset, I started getting founder pitches being like, I'm building in Web3, but what you've written about the passion economy and creator monetization is exactly the vision that we're building towards. And so I started backing all of these different Web3 projects that I found really compelling that fit the ultimate vision of what I was trying to support, which is new types of work and expanding access to new types of income on the internet. So I backed projects like Mirror, the Web3 publishing platform and crowdfunding platform, Foundation, the NFT marketplace, and many others. And that was all because like, I was able to respond so quickly to my intellectual interests and just decide on a day-by-day basis where I wanted to spend my time. Right. And I think for a lot of other solo GPs, it was probably similar where they could just let their interests lead them really quickly and responsively without the apparatus of a larger firm that kind of like dictates where people are going to spend their time. Right. If you're an enterprise partner at some multi-stage firm, they're probably gonna be like, all right, well, let's leave the crypto to the, <laughs> the people. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, do we want to have a firm crypto strategy? And like, sure. let's discuss that for six months, etc. Yeah. Though funny enough, something I've heard a lot is like Web3 is a space for people who are pretty much generalists and have a bunch of different interests. And I, I think that's kind of true. So it's interesting to hear that you got the opportunity to do that. But I guess it would be remiss for us not to mention the markets right now. And obviously, we've seen a little bit of price recovery, but we're still, I think, in a crypto winter. At least I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. But I'm curious that like as a VC, how do you sort of make the decision to balance between what you just did with Variant, like raising new funding to actually back new companies versus supporting your existing portfolio companies so that they have some runway to weather what's going on in the markets right now? Mm -hmm. Well, firstly, I would call out the fact that with this latest fund that we just raised and announced last week. Yeah. It's sort of bifurcated into two separate pools of capital. There's the seed fund, which is $150 million, and we'll continue our mandate of backing super early stage visionary founders who are building in in new markets enabled by Web3 there. And then there's a $300 million opportunity fund that we're going to be using to double down on portfolio projects that are showing demonstrated traction, both within the portfolio and beyond. So we're kind of doing both. We're both supporting our existing portfolio companies, and we're also continuing our work in early stage investing. And as investors, I actually really think that this is an amazing time to be a Web3 investor, despite the markets. I think it's a moment of really being able to get a very clear signal from the market as to what actually has product market fit. So I think as a consumer investor, these last couple of years, it's been incredibly noisy to parse out what actually has product market fit versus what has a lot of hype and speculation around it. And I think (laughs) as a a Web3 journalist, that's definitely been a challenge. Yeah, exactly. And I actually think the best consumer builders in Web3 are going to see this as an amazing opportunity to get accurate feedback from the market and be able to tell whether their product that they're building is actually solving a fundamental consumer need or not. Like the market today does not lie. Either consumers are going to adopt your product because it is actually doing something valuable for them or they're not. And that's because a lot of the speculative noise has died down. So I actually think right now the founders that we're seeing are as mission-driven as ever 
maybe even more so and super long-term oriented and really treat what they're building right now as their life's work. So we're really excited to continue on in our investing work at the current moment. And we think it's an awesome time to be an early stage investor. And right now is really the perfect time to think through the fundamental questions of what is the job to be done that I'm Mm -hmm. trying to solve for on the part of consumers? What is the community that I'm trying to seed my project with? How do I iterate to product market fit? I think those answers can become more crisp now than ever before. You know, one last thing, and I'm, I'm curious, the crypto space, it's very young. And like the companies that are dinosaurs in the space are less than a decade old. So I, I've been really interested in looking at Coinbase the past few months and like thinking about how much timing factors into all of this, because there have been like these rising exchanges over this bull cycle alone that have seemed to like catch fire and are now competing with it. When you're thinking about backing some of these companies, it seems like even amongst other spaces in venture, a lot of the success stories of bull runs are companies that were born in that bull run. And there are some that kind of transcend it. But I I'd say it's fair to say that it's a it's a very small number and it might even be a smaller number than companies in the Web2 space. So I guess, how does that, obviously you want to support your portfolio companies and keep your name in a good position, but also knowing that if a company didn't necessarily reach product market fit or didn't hit it in some capacity during the times that were really hot, it's a little bit of a different challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think timing obviously is everything when it comes to startups, building them, investing in them. But something that I'll point out about all of these different crypto cycles is that I think we often lose sight of the lineage between different cycles and how connected they are. Mm. So what I mean by that is right now we're at a moment in which a lot of people are reflecting on the last bull market and seeing a lot of these projects as kind of like speculative bubbles or unsustainable phenomenon. Well, people also said that in 2018, looking back at the previous bull market and dismissing a lot of the projects that had taken off at that time and fizzled out as kind of unsustainable novelties. But what they lose sight of is the fact that in each of those instances, there was usually some nugget of insight or learning that then paved the way for the more sustainable version in the next cycle. So an example of this would be like CryptoKitties. CryptoKitties took off. It represented this huge percentage of all the transactions on Ethereum in 2017, 2018, before ultimately kind of dying down. But that paved the way for NFTs and Topshot and all of the collectible market and PFPs in this cycle. And so I think timing is really important. But with the benefit of time, I think founders are going to iterate on a lot of the learnings from previous market cycles and continue to build towards the more sustainable versions of past projects. Mm -hmm. Well, Lee, thank you so much for joining us. We covered a lot of ground, a lot of different topics here, and we were super excited to have you on the podcast. So it was a great conversation and hope you have a great rest of your week and month and we'll see how things shake out in the industry. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Lee. We'll be back every week with interviews with the experts in the Web3 space. Catch Anita, Jackie, and myself every Thursday for the latest in crypto news. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform. And subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and more from our guests can be found in our show notes. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Chain underscore Reaction. 
Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Lucas Matney, along with my co-host, Anita Ramswamy. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni, and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.